Kim. Hi, Joanna. I love this woman. Oh, Joanna is so awesome. And she's our new assistant pastor, if you haven't heard. And the commissioning for Joanna as our new assistant pastor and Wade and Joe on our oversight team. The commissioning is on December 2nd, so mm-hmm. come on down for that. And we'll do lots and, of and prayer. And the, parent, the parents are coming. My parents are coming. Wade's mom's coming. So good times. Good times. <laughs> I don't hear any sarcasm in your voice. No, no it, oh. actually it will be. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to be sarcastic. They're no. awesome. I can't wait for you to meet them. Yeah. If you haven't no, before. Just, just, you know. I did have to think, though, what have I actually said about my family when I was teaching? No, it was all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So, God, we just ask you just to to bless Joanna's heart and her words and just to open up our minds and hearts and just to be open to what Joanna has to say. Now that I'm sure there's many of us and many times in our life where we've just felt like the revenge or the retaliation and that we just look forward to your word, God, and what you need us to hear on that. So just bless Joanna now as she speaks, and just to continue to bless her with grace and love and mercy as she carries forward as our assistant pastor. Thank you, God, and thank you, Joanna. Amen. Amen. Way to go. Kim, you're doing such a great job. So great. You know, I remember hearing once from a teacher that I respected that, uh, that walking in holiness is living up to the light of the truth that you have at that point in time. And Kim is such an amazing example of that. Every time she just is like, I think maybe I could do this next thing, she sort of steps into it and rocks it every time. So keep taking those baby steps because you are totally blessing us as a community every time you step into something. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I had an idea about something the other day and called Kim and said, would you help me brainstorm with about this just in case it might be something that we did in an hour and a half later? I don't even know how long it was. It's great. It was a while. Yeah. So this morning we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a piece of teaching that we are studying out of the Gospel of Matthew. And for those of you who are not super familiar with the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount is essentially uh, a piece of teaching that Jesus did when he was sitting on a mountain, hence the title, that if you like, you could take that sermon, that chunk of teaching, and it serves almost like as a, as a Coles Notes, we Canadians would say, or what's the, what's the American equivalent of Coles Notes? The Cliff Notes, um, the course objectives, if you will, for essentially the whole gospel. And it's, it's really boiled down. And what we're doing as a church is we've had a whole focus this year on discipleship and evangelism. And we're going through the Sermon on the Mount and through the teachings there and trying to unpack them. Because essentially, it, it's the core of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And what does it mean to be somebody that helps make disciples? And the whole... Uh, so it's, we want to understand Jesus, but his, Jesus' primary message and kingdom, message, I can't even talk. Jesus' primary message and mission was talking about an alternative society that he referred to as the kingdom of God or the reign of God. And he encouraged us as followers of Jesus to be salt People are flavorful, tasty, add taste to a conversation, and light, bring light into the world. And so if we want to know how to do that, and we want to know how to live our lives in such a way that worshiping God and following Jesus is actually attractive and interesting to other people, this is a really core teaching for us. So as a church, we're moving our way through this. And Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount by saying that if we, if we want to be followers of Jesus— Wait a second. I'm using this mic, but I have a mic. Thanks, Dean. How long were you waiting? Were you just back there like, how long will it take for her to realize? So I can have my hands free now? Once I listened to my own sermon and I had a metal water bottle during that sermon, and every few minutes you could hear clunk, 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 clunk. 
Okay, is that a bit better? Is that going to work with this distance that it is? Okay, thank you so much, Dean. So one of the things that Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount by stating was that the difference between a life finishing well and a life finishing disastrously was putting into practice Jesus' words. So actually doing what he said, not just hearing them. So every week we're looking for a tangible, practical application. So this week my job is to give you a tangible, practical application about revenge and retaliation. So (laughs) we're going to work on that. It's going to be better than it sounds, I promise you. And uh, even though we're studying a passage out of the book of Matthew chapter 5, in verse 8, we need to backtrack a little bit because one of the things that you need to know is that earlier in chapter 5, Jesus said that if we want other people to see our lives and be interested in how we're living, that we need to let our good deeds shine. And so what you need to know about this passage is it's one of the detailed passages that he's now talking and explaining what those good deeds are. What does that look like? What is a good life that's shining before men? What's that like? And he has two sections. There's general declarations, and then he goes through, and he, he's giving this crowd of first century Palestinian, probably mostly Jewish listeners, examples from the Old Testament. So he's using references that, that these listeners would have been familiar with all of their lives. And so he's referencing Old Testament examples and saying, you've heard it said, Old Testament example, but now, and what he's doing is contrasting it with a righteousness that is of the kingdom, is of the way that Jesus wants us to listen to. And, and Gordy talked in, in, has been talking in his past sermons about how Jesus has been challenging in the passages that we've already heard that if we want to be participants in this kingdom, if we want to be followers of Jesus, that our righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. But... What that meant was these Old Testament laws, these scribes, these Pharisees who had been trying to follow these laws had been trying to look for the letter of the law. And what we want to look at more today, what we've already been focusing on and what we're going to talk about more is that law of love and how are we following things from a heart, a heart that um, is coming from a holiness that's coming from obedience to God that's from our hearts. That's not from a place of how much can I get away with and what's the thinnest line that I can walk. And also recognizing that God is holy and that God deserves worship and, and awe. And the, you know, the way that we respond to nature, the way that we respond to the world around it, the way that we respond to all those things that stir beauty inside of us, that those are the places that we're looking for this obedience to come from, not from this letter of the law. So I didn't even ask what I click. Thanks, guys. Good Lord. It takes a village. Point it there and page down. We're turning things on. We're paging down. Yay! Yay! Look at that. We talked about that. The Sermon on the Mount. Good deeds. Surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees. And the letter of the law versus obedience from the heart. We're all on track, even me. Good times. Okay. So let's read our passage that we're going to be talking about today. So let's read it all together. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our topic today is retaliation, revenge, payback, retribution, vengeance. Any other ones? 
Yeah, don't let them get the best of you, man. You gotta get them back. And it can be characterized as a form of justice. Um, usually, when there's a perception that justice isn't gonna be done. Justice isn't gonna be done in the way that I think it needs to be, so I'm gonna get payback. I'm, I'm getting retribution. This isn't gonna happen on my own, so I'm gonna do that. And I, I don't know if you know this, but revenge is a hot topic these days. I, I love it when God helps me do my homework, especially in the midst of hanging out with my three small kids and homeschooling and the other random things that I do. And I, for fun, picked up a magazine in the library this week thinking, why am I picking up a magazine when I have a sermon to prep? Like, I'm actually going to have a chance to look at it. And then I realized, besides the article on Gwyneth Paltrow, who I totally think could be a friend of mine if I ever actually met her, there was a thing on the front that said, sweet revenge, something or other. And I went, are you kidding me? There's an article in here about revenge. And I opened it up, and it was every piece of research that I needed. This author had done research from, and I just went, Jesus, I love you. This is how I'm going to do this sermon this week with my husband. Wade worked for um, our friend Miles, who goes to the church as well. He's away right now, so Wade did Miles' work this week, and we juggled. It was a good time. So revenge is a hot topic. It is in the spotlight. Do you know what the title of the Fox television series that was nominated for the 2012 People's Choice Awards this year for favorite TV drama is? Yes, it's called Revenge. There's actually bus stop ads about this. It's, it's the highest rated series in the Wednesday night 10 o'clock time slot since Lost. And uh, there is a TV reality show, I had never heard of this one before, called Cheaters. Has anybody seen Cheaters? Heard of Cheaters? Apparently this exists, probably in America. And uh, those Americans, those crazy Americans, we love those guys. This is apparently a show where adulterous partners get caught by a film crew with their angry lovers in tow. Um, but revenge may, is making up some, some, uh, some really key movie plots. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was nominated for an Oscar last year. That's a plot to arrive at. But Batman is back for revenge again this year. It's everywhere. And... Um, uh, you know, it's on songs, okay? Have you heard, you know, my husband always likes to bring heavy metal songs. I'm just going to, you know, mix it up a little bit. You guys heard Carrie Underwood, right? And I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little soup. Anyway, it's all about before he cheats. It's all about cheating. And uh, there's a woman whose name is Eva Nagorski, and she has written a book called the down and dirty dish on revenge, serving it up nice and cold to the lying, cheating, and then there's a word that starts with a B and ends with a D. And she says, culture celebrates revenge because it's taboo and it's titillating and it's sexy. Revenge is sexy. I don't totally get that, but apparently that's what Eve Nagorski says. She wrote a whole book about it, but there it is. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, professors that are studying this are saying that there has been a shift in our popular culture in the last 10 years, in that this is a theme that is coming up in movies and in TV and in popular songs, and it's coming up more and more. And there's a shift in attitude that's gone from revenge or retribution is something that's going to get you into trouble to revenge is something that's good, and that there's very rarely the consequences of seeking revenge are ever shown. And, and what's being put forth. And while Nagorski, who wrote the book about how titillating revenge is, says that she didn't detect a particular point of a shift in the culture, the author of the article makes a point that I really agree with, and that she said for her, she felt a key shift came after September 11th, 2001, when the American president at the time, George W. Bush, his response to the attacks was totally about retaliation. We are going to make these people pay and um, we're going to hunt down these terrorists. And there was language there that I remember actually being shocked. I remember watching it. And I had American, we had four American friends in our home the morning of September 11th. And we woke up and turned the TV on. And, and we were with them as they were watching their country be bombed. And they were trying to figure out whether or not they could get back into the States. And I remember one friend saying, there's going to be a war. There is going to be a war. There's going to be a war now. And I was saying, you've got to stop saying that. You have to stop saying that. You can't say that. And he was saying, 
well, there just is. There's just going to be a war now. There is. And I was like, oh, I don't know. too much. And, um, and I remember hearing the response of the president and being shocked and thinking, oh, my gosh, Wayne was right. That's what is happening now. And it, you know, and so there's a number of things that has happened. And there's a professor at the University of Calgary that studied revenge in depth that said over the past decade, it's become more prevalent. And um, for moviegoers, there's this sense of aesthetic joy and beauty in people getting what they deserve. And um, the same researchers suggest, actually, that we can become numb to scenes of revenge in the same way that we can become numb to scenes of of violence. Um, But, you know, what I would like to say from these references that suggest we take pleasure in revenge is that I think we are created in God's image, and God loves justice, and God is a just God, and so it's right for us to desire justice. But what's interesting about how our fallen nature gets twisted in this is there's another study that was done at the University of Zurich in Switzerland that says that they did studies on people's uh, brains and they took an MRI and when it was suggested to them that people that they wanted retaliation against that that could happen, the part of their brain that lit up was the pleasure center of the brain, the same part of the brain that responds to cocaine or chocolate. As a side note, during this planted time in my research, I felt it was important to have some chocolate, and I did. So that happened, and it was good. Um, But it's another thing to say, you know, I think that we all, I I don't know, I shouldn't say we all. I love a a movie where there's revenge, where justice is done. I mean, I think probably you can think of Examples of movies that you've seen. Can you? Can anybody think of an example of a movie they've seen where somebody gets what they deserve, and you die think, hard. Die, hard. "Die Hard, Payback, Payback, Payback." Sure. Dexter. Oh, I haven't watched Dexter. Is that? Oh, okay. It's a series. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, for an eye, we're going to talk about the Is that a show? Is that a movie? Oh my gosh, yikes. I don't think I could watch that. (laughs) On a lighter note, I bet you a number of people here in this room could finish this sentence. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. (laughs) Prepare to die. Come on, Princess Bride people. Hello, this is a character through the whole film. Everywhere he goes, he says, I love you. Are you referencing this? Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. But at the end of the film, the guy says, I spent my whole life looking for revenge, and I, I don't know what to do with myself now. This has been my whole purpose, but I don't know what to do. My favorite movie where somebody gets what they deserve is Shawshank Redemption. I mean, there's wow. no, like, the scene yeah. where he escapes and comes up, and it's yeah. like he's bo- Tim Robbins is born from the <laughs> earth, and then the... The hammer is in the Bible, and the judge, and now I don't like that the judge feels he needs to, anyway, that's not so great, but there's, I mean, there's an, you know, the end, I watched a clip of it again, and even how they pan out, and you don't even get to see Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman greet each other on the beach at the end, they just, you get, just get to see them see each other, and then they pan, oh man, justice, we love justice, but how do we function in our, our own lives, because Studies also show that the joy that we find when we think about revenge and we think about justice is very different than the emotions that people actually feel when they seek revenge. And there was another study that showed that if you actually act on feelings of revenge or retribution, you don't feel joy, you don't feel relief, you feel more anger, and you feel more guilt. And... Um, in one particular study, there were participants, and I don't know how they worked this out, but they were given a chance to avenge for a specific act, but those who followed through felt worse than those who decided not to do that. So, you know, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's a whole, there's, I mean, there's media sites. There's, you can send people dead fish and rotten flowers and post pictures. It's unbelievable how the culture has embraced this idea that revenge is a good thing. But one psychotherapist says that the issue is power. And that when somebody does something to us, and we can't, thank you, Peter, and we can't do anything about it, we feel powerless. And we feel small. And 
Revenge is one way that we think that we can take our power back and try and restore those. But even secular researchers who are not even focusing on on any aspect of what the gospel truth behind this are saying, it's a really slippery slope. Because if that happens, you can wind up with more feelings of guilt or more feelings of anger. So what do we do? Because in the world's eyes, the idea is that if someone's done something wrong to you, they've taken your power. This is the language that this article uses. But um, I don't think that that's the way that Jesus looked at this situation at all. And we're going to talk about that in that that's the world's perspective of power. That's the world's perspective of um, right and wrong. But what I want to look at today is something that is a whole different perspective on how Jesus saw us and our rights. And this is, it is about power, but it's also about justice. Am I pointing here? Yes. And the original text that Jesus is quoting from when he talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth was actually all about ensuring fair justice. This was not some barbaric law that Jesus was saying, this is a terrible thing. This is a law that was a good and just and fair law because what was happening at that time was say you did do something deliberately or accidentally that took somebody's eye. Well, the retribution that was happening in that culture at the time was so over the top. You lost an eye, someone would come and kill you, and then they'd go and kill your whole family. And this retribution was out of control. And this law is actually the basis for compensation laws that we still have today. It was not that you got to take somebody's eye out, but that you were compensated for the value of an eye. What was that eye worth? And in fact, Wade and I have a very dear friend who was a co-worker with us in YWAM. She was in a car accident several years ago. She's a beautiful young girl. She's now the mother of three. She's an incredible woman. She was in this car accident, and Lou had an, an eyebrow piercing. And the, eye, the airbag went off, and it injured her eye. And she lost partial vision, and she never got it back. This isn't just a statement against eyebrow piercings, but um, what it was is that she was compensated. She was compensated through insurance, she went to court, and she was given compensation for the value of her eye. And at the time, we didn't say, well, what's an eye worth or whatever, or we wanted justice. We were upset that this had happened. We were praying daily for her healing, but we, we felt it was right that she got that money that she was compensated in that insurance. And I can't even explain to you totally why I felt that way, other than just I went, yeah, here's my beautiful friend who is athletic and this and that, who will be impacted for the rest of her life, and I want her to have something for this. And so those compensatory laws are still in place today. So it's not like we're saying, you know, throw it out. There's an expression, and I made reference to it last week when I was emceeing, where Gandhi said, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind, which sounds very good, but it's really important that we know what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't, even the Old Testament wasn't saying, let's all go poke each other's eyes out. It was saying, let's be fair. Let's have fair compensation. And so Jesus is asking us, Yeah, eye for an eye, justice, not an issue of power. Thank you. So at the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount, one of the things that we talked about is that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. One of the books that I read or one of the places I saw it was this book here called The Cost of Community, Jesus, St. Francis, and Life in the Kingdom. And it was written by my friend, my friend Jamie, who actually was on staff with me at YWAM at the same time that my friend Lou that I was just talking about was on. He's an incredible writer, and it just happens to be all about the Sermon on the Mount and how he and his community in an urban center in Winnipeg have been working out the truth of what this looks like to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that Jamie suggests is that the reason why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will see God, is that if you are a peacemaker that is coming to a solution where your desire is wholeness and your desire is reconciliation and your desire is for everyone in the situation to have the best, all you're going to be able to see is God. It's not that you're going to have this blessed are the peacemakers, and suddenly there'll be a vision, oh, God is there. It's that 
If what you're looking for is wholeness and what you're looking for is reconciliation, you're going to stop seeing all the other stuff in that situation and you're going to see God. So this is not, in the kingdom, an issue of power. This, when we come into a situation where we feel that we've been wronged or even somebody that we love has been wronged, if we're peacemakers, God is all we see because our own agendas and our own rights and our own desires are laid down. And so then God is all that's left. And laying down our rights is a big concept, but it comes pretty simply. Because if you can phrase anything that you want to say in that situation, as in, you've got no right, or I think I have a right to, fill in the blank, that's a, you can, you can lay that down. It, I, I work with an organization called Youth of the Mission. That's the, the acronym YWAM that I'm using. And our founder wrote a book years ago called The Dynamic Power of Laying Down Your Rights. And it's essentially the understanding that if you're a follower of Jesus, you actually, we've, we've given up our rights. We've said, well, Jesus, you're Lord. So you have my life. So you have a right to everything that's mine. You have a right to my finances. You have a right to my decisions. You have a right to my family. You have a right to all those things. Now, God's never going to take anything from any of us. It's always for us to continue to present over and over again. That's that living sacrifice. That's that offering of worship of our lives again and again and again. But often when we're offended, often when we're angry, it's, it's because if we're in a situation where we're talking about an argument, we feel one of our rights has been offended. Now, this subject is so broad. And sometimes retaliation or revenge is huge because somebody's done something to you that's truly just wrong. There's nothing right about it. And all I can say in that situation is once again when we go back to having hearts of wanting to be peacemakers is to just ask God for mercy to help you want wholeness, to help you want reconciliation. But I'm getting ahead of myself, getting ahead of myself here. This is not about power, and it's not all about us, right? It's not all about what our rights are. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, the followers of Jesus, for Jesus' sake, renounce every personal right. He calls them blessed because they are meek. If after giving up everything else for his sake, they still wanted to cling to their rights, they would have ceased to follow him. So this passage is simply an elaboration of the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes is the passage at the beginning that we've been studying, which just says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Blessed are the, I can't remember all of them. There's a lot of blessedness in there. So this call is a call for followers of Jesus to be willing to pay any price to see the kingdom of God break forth in our lives, to break forth in the middle of our arguments, to break forth in our situations at work, in, in home. The other point that my friend Jamie made in his book that I think is so smart is that Jesus uses really specific examples in this passage. He talks about being hit in the face. He talks about being taken to court and sued for your tunic. And he talks about one of the Roman army taking you and making you carry their gear for a mile. And in using those examples, he makes a point that this isn't just a point about our own personal problems and our own personal retaliation. Because being struck in the face is certainly personal. But being taken to court is, is a public matter. It's a, a legal matter, and the example of the military can, re, I mean, that could arch over all different areas of society. And what Jamie suggests in his book is that it's really important for us that we not compartmentalize our lives and say, well, it's, you know, I can be Christ-like in this area, but this other area here, this is business. You know? <laughs> Thanks for responding that way. I think that too, right? We say silly things sometimes. Well, I could be, it's all well and good for me to be, you know, like Jesus in this place. But in this other area here, well, this is, we're talking business time. And see, people in revenge movies say stuff like that all the time. 
that we think it's cool. Like Die Hard. Yeah. Let's just say I watched an edited version of Die Hard one time, and he says, yippee Mr. Falcon. And it's just not the same thing. Um, yeah. So as we said before, right, this is about Jesus basically comparing and saying to us, we, I don't want you to be somebody like the Pharisees that's walking this thin edge of how much can I get away with? How much can I, what's the measure? I mean, I remember when I first started following Jesus again, I remember asking questions like this. Well, am I allowed, I don't know, are you allowed to, I don't know, it always seemed to be about kissing and how far you could go, which is not this topic at all. But you know what I mean? Like it's, when you're new Christians, it's like, how much are we allowed to do? And I remember really godly people saying things to me like, well, it's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where your own, and I remember even being quite a new Christian and Wade and I started dating and asking him and he would say, well, you know, like, what do you think about it? And I would be like, surely, I mean, surely there's a rule about this. Are there no rules here? You know? And really, Jesus is saying, I want your heart to be the measure of this. You know? And how much are you willing to give up of yourself to put that other person first? Um, because what this is about is not just how we can just not retaliate. Because I live with a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and an eight-year-old, and my whole day is spent with them based on how we can just not retaliate. I am not kidding. From first thing in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, it is, well, he took my turn on my game that I was doing my thing on. I mean, oh my gosh, we let our kids start playing these games on the iPad where they collect stuff. And one of them has Ponyville and one of them has Dragonville, but one of them spent someone's gems in an imaginary world. And then this person should let, so I should have to get to spend this many gems. And all this week I keep saying, okay, so it's not just about how you can retaliate, but how could you even be more generous? And um, hi, buddy, I'm just talking about you. What's going on? Why aren't you in kids' church? You want to do stuff up here? You know what? I'm going to give you to Dad. No, I know. I know. I hear you. Gordy, can I tell you that Papa Gordy is going to so enjoy this bit when he's listening to it online? Hi, Gordy. I love you. Okay. I love your mother. Okay. That's awesome. And that was a sermon illustration like I could not have possibly planned. So this is, thank you, moms in the nursery. Okay, so that's what it's like. Honestly, is seriously, our lives are like hair pulling and punching. We let Pax watch a Charlie Brown show recently. Do you know how much people in Charlie Brown talk about slugging each other and pounding each other? I had no idea. When I was a kid, it was not a big deal. He said to me the other day, if you're writing another letter to this stupid great pumpkin, you're going to make me the laughing stock of this neighborhood and I'll pound you. I was writing notes in a journal. I said to Pax, what did you just say? <laughs> like, what's going on? And we spend our whole week just, I'm going to hit you and she hit me, so I'm going to do this thing. So all this week, my revelation was, I've been spending all my time in motherhood just trying to get them to not retaliate. But what Jesus is talking about in this sermon is how can we not only just not retaliate, but how can we move in the total opposite spirit? Somebody wants to smack you on the cheek, you say, do you need another cheek to smack? Do you, you need to sue me for my tunic? I'm going to gift wrap my coat and give you my coat. You're going to force me, military, at gunpoint to carry your pack for a mile? I will totally take your pack and carry it two miles. And what he's talking about is not asking us to be abused or to have our possessions stolen. He is talking about an upside-down kingdom that is the opposite of not just revenge, of not just payback, but the total opposite spirit. I said to Sophia, we were exhausted, and I had made them promise that they would clean up the living room when we got home from Science World. This is seriously how this is working out in my life right now. It is not huge examples. It's these teeny, tiny things that God's teaching me on. And I said, you promised me that you would help clean up. She said, well, we went in there to clean up, and Eleanor laid down and did nothing. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, okay. So then I hear this sermon in my head, right, Kim? You want God to speak to you, just volunteer to share at the front of the church. It's just going to follow you all week long. So I'm ready, right? My heart was to say, well, you promised. You promised that if I let you go to Science World first, that you would clean up when you got home. That was what you said. 
And oh, I have said things like that so many times before. Did you see it? My finger came out and I did not even realize that my finger just came out. That just happens. You go into labor and your finger gets this thing. I don't even know. So I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in my head and I say, how could you do the opposite? I know you want to yell at Eleanor and say, you're not doing your share of work, but why don't you say, Eleanor, could I do your cleanup for you? And this is what she looks at me like. This is the little girl who just prayed here. This is my daughter that I'm talking about. So she looks at me and she goes. <sighs> and then I hear the Holy Spirit like, you're going to disciple her. <laughs> like, this is what you have to do. So then I go, Sophia, would you like me to do your cleanup for you? She goes, are you serious? Do you mean it? I was like, yeah. I said, do you want to, should we do it together? Want to do it together? Sure, we could do it together. That was the kingdom breaking forth in our house this week. That's what it looked like. That was how tiny it was, but that's what it looked like. And I almost feel like that it's not good enough to give to those of you who, whose wounds on this are so much bigger than that. But I have to trust that it is because I know at times in my life where I've been so wounded by something that was a way bigger deal. God's met me through my forgiveness. Through my needing to forgive, which I'm going to come to again in just a second. Um, there's a fantastic story in this book about St. Francis and about his brothers, who there was one point where his fellow brothers, his fires, were actually robbed. Oh, they were, somebody attempted to rob you okay, Brian? Okay? Okay. Um, somebody attempted to rob them, and the brother shames the guy down and says, shame on you. We're brothers who give up everything, and you would take our food. Look, the finger. He must have had the finger down that day. You know, you get, you're giving, you're t- trying to take food from us. Shame on you. And they go away. And Francis comes back with bread and wine for the day, and he says, Francis, these guys tried to rob us today, and I just shot them down. I told them. I mean, he said this in Italian in much older language. I'm sure he didn't use that yeah. phrase, but you get the point. I just told them what to do. You know, I did not let them take our food. And Francis says, shame on you. Every person that asks us for anything were to give something to them. You go to them, you find them. You take this bread and this wine, which is our only food for the day. You know that God is going to come to people. People are going to come to God through meekness and gentleness and love. God, these people are not going to come to God from you scolding them. You go take them our food and you ask for them forgiveness. And the tradition of monks at that time was to ask forgiveness on their knees. On both knees, I ask your forgiveness. They sent Brother Angelo, was his name, with the only food that the monks had for the day, came to the robbers, knelt down on the knees, and said, will you please forgive me for scolding you? Please take this bread and this wine and enjoy it with our blessing. And if you would like to come back to the friary, Brother Francis says he will care for your needs. They sat and ate the food in front of the hungry friar, and then they came back and repented and came to live in the friary and came to the Lord. My favorite movie scene that talks about this is one that Peter's going to gear up for us. It is from the 1998 version of um, Les Miserables with Liam Neeson and a fantastic character actor whose name I wish I knew. An unexpected error has occurred. Come on, YouTube. About not just grace, but moving totally in the opposite spirit. really dark, but this is the character Jean Valjean, and he is going through the silver in the house of a bishop and his wife who took him in the night before. He'd come to the door and shown them his passport, which indicated that he was a convict. He'd served 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread, and the bishop took him in, and this is the bishop here.
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Watch it again. Liam Neeson is such an incredible actor. And you can see in his face this moment where he goes from total darkness to the priest says, I've bought you. I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you. I've taken you from evil. And I'm giving you back to God. And there's just this moment. And that character for the rest of his life never forgets it and how he lives that out. So I want to look at the same passage again one more time, in the translation from Eugene Peterson's The Message, because I find often if you read a passage that you've heard over and over again, sometimes you can lose it, but the way that Peterson translates things wakes up your ears a little bit. So he says, here's another old saying that deserves a second look, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Guys, that is three-year-old stuff, I know, because I live with three-year-olds, yet it is the first inclination. I can tell you the other day when Pac said to me, I'm going to slug you, and we were at the end of a day, it was Friday, can I say a trip to Ikea where the children's area was full was involved, and he hit me, I hit him back. Not hard, but he, I said, I'm going to slug you, I was trying to buckle him into his car seat, and he went, wham, and I just went, ah, ah, and hit him on the arm right back. I mean, our human nature, now, think I wasn't hard, whatever, and he went, you know, he laughed, and, went, and I went, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry that I hit you, that's not right, we shouldn't slug each other, but you know what, that's my, still, my inclination, somebody hits you, you hit you back. I mean, that is our fallen human nature. If you doubt that we are fallen people, we need more volunteers in preschool, people. <laughs> I am serious. The worship team, the whole worship team roster is full of people that have babies and children. If you like worship, volunteer in preschool. You'll get to see our fallen human nature just worked out over and over and over again. But this is the case. This is what he says. No more tit-for-tat preschool stuff live generously live generously right with our hearts with our lives with our finances with our time that's the kingdom life and if someone wants to take it from you take things from you 
The opposite, the natural thing is to say, stop stealing my stuff. The human, the fallen part, the supernatural response is, what do you need? Tell me what you need. There's so many great things. I, I, just, I did a search in, in Peterson's The Message for how many other times he says live generously in that translation. It comes up again in this same passage in, in 48 that Gordy's going to get to about loving your enemies. But basically in 48, the end, he says, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. No more preschool stuff. Grow up. You are kingdom subjects, so live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and live graciously towards others the way that God lives towards you. God is so generous to us, right? When he's sending the disciples out in Matthew 10, 5, 8, it's translated, you've been treated generously, so you live generously. In Luke 6, 35 to 36, when he's telling people to love their enemies, Jesus says in this translation, live out this God-created identity the way that the Father lives towards us, generously and graciously. You're rich in love. You're slow to anger. Your name is great, and your heart is kind, we sang this morning. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing. Right? That's what I'm saying to my Nori. My Nori was born passionate. Those of you who have seen Eleanor since she was born, you know she can scream like, well, like Saoirse Lee Lee screams now. And our ministry right now is to say to Mark and Lynn, it's going to end, it's going to end. But she's never stopped being passionate. She's a passionate person. And what we're working on right now is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Romans 5 Verse 3 to 5, the verse that we've heard so often about praising in times of trouble because we know that we'll develop patience and patience turns into virtue and that turns into hope. Peterson translates that word hope as in alert expectancy. In this alert expectancy, we're not left feeling shortchanged because we're doing quite the contrary. We actually can't round up enough containers to hold all the goodness that God's pouring into our lives. Living generously is how we share the gospel with our lives, which is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. How are we salt and light? How, when we get cut off in traffic, when someone is just mean to us, when things are rude, or when something way bigger happens, something way bigger happens, how do we respond? How do we respond? To finish up, I read a story this week that was just the most extraordinary example of going beyond more than just not retaliating. And it was a story that I found from online from the UK Daily Mail, but it was actually a story that they were reporting about something that happened in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was the story of a woman whose name is Mary Johnson. And in February of 1993, Mary Johnson's only son was killed at a house party by another teenage boy who was mixed up in drugs and gangs. That teenage boy was 16 at the time. His name is O'Shea Israel. O'Shea Israel now lives next door to Mary Johnson in an apartment that she helped him find. What happened was this. Israel went to jail, and he served 17 years before he was released. And Mrs. Johnson said that what she wanted was justice. She wanted Israel to be locked up for what he had done. She said, my son was gone, I was angry, I hated this boy, and I hated his mother. I had a friend who told me the other day that her kid had been hurt on the playground by something. My first response was like, I will come and I will find that kid, because if they hurt their kid, I mean, that's my first response. You don't want anything bad to happen to anyone, especially our kids, right? But then she said, but this murder was like a tsunami for me. It was shock, disbelief, hatred, anger, hatred, blame, hatred. I wanted him to be caged up like the animal he was. She thought he was an animal. And then she said she found a support group, and that support group counseled mothers, and one of their ways of supporting was encouraging them to reach out to the families of of their murderers, because the murderers were victims of a whole other kind. She said, hurt is hurt. It doesn't matter what side you're on. Now, Mary Johnson is a devout Christian, but it took her years before she felt like she could go. She said she finally felt compelled to ask if there was a way that she could forgive her son's killer. And at first, he refused to see her. 
But nine months later, he agreed and changed his mind, and he said he was shocked by the fact that she wanted to meet him. And he said, I think the first thing that she said to me was, look, you don't know me, and I don't know you. So let's just start with today. Let's start right now. And he said, I was befuddled myself, but then they just started meeting. And when he was released from prison 18 months ago, Mrs. Johnson introduced him to his landlord, her landlord. And with the landlord's blessing, she moved in next door, and they share a front porch. And they're now close friends, and it's a situation that she puts down to her strong religious beliefs. It's about her faith, but she says she also has a selfish motive. And for me in my life, when really big things have happened to me, I have to be honest in that this is my first motivation because I have felt like I could not live with the anger and the hurt towards people that had hurt me, cheated me, robbed me. I just, I had to release it because I couldn't live that way. And she said, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. Nelson Mandela said, it's on the other page, it's like taking, unforgiveness is like taking poison yourself and hoping that it's going to kill your enemies. So she said it was like a cancer and it was eating her from the inside out. She said it's not about the other person because me forgiving him doesn't diminish what he did. He murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. So now, Mary Johnson wears a locket, a two-sided locket. And on one side is a picture of her son, and on the other side is O'Shea Israel. Israel admits that he is the one who's still struggling with this extraordinary situation. But what's happened is that he wants to prove himself now to this mom. And so, he has a job during the day, he goes to college at night, and he is determined to pay her back. That is kingdom payback. He visits prisons and churches, and sometimes they go together and they toy their story together. And the synopsis of what he says is, one conversation can go a long way. So this is about us not just not retaliating. This is about us being a part of an upside-down kingdom that makes no sense to the world. That we can say, I don't really have any rights anymore because I gave them up. I deserve nothing. I mean, really, I deserve hell. You know, God has been so merciful to me and the choices that I've made and the love that he's shown me in my life. I deserve nothing, and yet he continues to pour out blessing on my life. This also comes down to trust and us being willing to trust that if we do not see vindication in this life, if we do not see retaliation the way we would like to see it, that we can believe the verses in the Bible that say that God is the one who vindicates. And trust comes out of obedience from a heart of love. It's trusting that we have community around us who will care for us when we can't walk, when we're weak, and believing that God is our dad, who looks at that and says, don't, that is so wrong that you did that to my kid. That he is righteously angry that someone has done something to us that was so wrong. But you know what? Because we know that he is so righteously angry, we truly can, we truly can release our own need to vindicate, our own need to hold that anger, to release that to the Lord, and to say, Oh, I'm so glad you came back. You forgot the candlesticks. You took that. I wanted to give you this other thing too. So God is so generous with us. We always need to be generous with him. So my question for you today is, is there an area of your life where you still long for retaliation or revenge? Would totally make sense. If you've lived a while in this world, chances are you've been really hurt. But my question today is, how can you invite God into that situation? And I think there's one more question for reflection there, Peter. I can't get this to work. And how, what's the opposite spirit of what's been done to you? There are so many times where I've seen this lived out powerfully by people I've mentored me, even in areas as simple as, if you're really broke, start giving stuff away. 
What is the opposite spirit? What's going on in your life? Is it poverty? Is it, I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know. But all I know, this is a powerful principle of this upside down kingdom. So this is a topic, as I said earlier, that's so broad and it's so immense. And um, as we come to a close today, I would just want to invite you to, first of all, Ask God to help you apply this to the little areas of your life, the everyday areas of your life where you just, where we have that knee-jerk reaction, right? That Charlie Brown instinct of, oh, I'm going to slug you. But how do we not not retaliate? And then for those of you who are dealing with way bigger pain about something that's been done to you, there is healing here for you today. There is healing there for you today to dict here for you today. There is just one more step on what it is that the Lord wants to do to help you release this so that you are not eaten by that cancer. You are not eaten by that unforgiveness. You are not held prisoner. You are not the one taking that poison. So we're going to close uh, for today. And... Um, I'm just going to stop and pray and just see. We, it's time for those uh, people who have kids downstairs to go and relieve, relieve the kids' workers. But if you know you need prayer, maybe you could just tag somebody else to get your kids for you. And um, let's just take a minute to pray. Loving God, holy God, we worship you in wonder. Loving God, holy God, you are slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. Thank you for all your goodness. Lord, I want to thank you for the gentle way that you're coming right now to my brothers and sisters in this place. I want to thank you for the gentle way that you're coming to some terribly painful stuff. I just declare, first of all, that this is totally a safe place in the name of the Lord Jesus. Just thank you for the blood of Jesus that just covers this whole place, the windows, the doors, the walls, everything. Thank you for your angels, Lord Jesus, that surround us and defend us. And I thank you, God, that you have routed and chased out anything that does not belong to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for your healing that's just coming right now that's coming right now. Thank you, Lord, for your healing that's coming right now. Just let it come, Lord. Just let it come. Let it just come right now to these tender places, Lord, whether they're new or old, whether it's from this past Friday or whether it's from a long time ago. Thank you, God, that you're so gracious and that you want to free us, Lord, that you want to free us from these chains just like we literally saw in that movie clip where the police just took the irons off. And the bishop said, you're free, don't you understand? You're free. Thank you, Lord. Love you, Gordy Gibosh. You're so loved. You're so precious to us. Yeah, you're so important to us, Gordy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Just restore safe places today, God. Just restore safe places today, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. So thank you for what you're doing here, God. We don't want to interrupt that in any way, but I just want to release those of you who uh, feel that you're, um, if you're finished, please feel free to go. If you're not, please don't go anywhere. I'll just put on some uh, pre-recorded music and um, just invite you to be church to each other. I'm available for prayer. If there's anybody else on our prayer team or oversight team who would come and join me for prayer, that would be great. Um, 
Uh, but I just invite you to turn to each other, turn to somebody that you trust, and ask for prayer if you need that. And I want to bless you to have uh, a week in which God and the Holy Spirit catches you in those little times where you're ready to (gasps) retaliate in things big and small, and that the Holy Spirit would continue to come and comfort you and heal you and fill all those places in your life where where you so need that, that you would be freed and released to move in the opposite spirit this week. So I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to go in peace and love and serve the Lord.